All right. Well, we've been in our yearly theme, and we've been answering one question all year, and it's been great to just focus our hearts and our minds on something really important, and we've been asking this question, do I trust God? And we've been in a series the past couple of weeks just talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And let me just refresh us about what we talked about last week because the two messages that I have from last week and this morning really go together. So last week, you'll remember that we talked about the villages and the culture and the ways and the principles that all became a part of who the disciples were in the first century. And there was a purpose and a structure for that that Jesus um, knew about and was focused on from the villages that were around the Sea of Galilee in that region of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time making disciples. There was a strong culture of discipleship in that area. Every single village had their own synagogue, their own rabbi, their own structure of school and discipleship. And so it was a very organized structure, but a very intentional one, very purposeful and very passionate. And the discipleship started when you're around six years old. You continued in that school till you're about 12. If you were excelling, you went on, you went to school till you were about 16. If you continued to excel, by that point, you had the entire Old Testament memorized and great knowledge of the Old Testament. You would hope at that point that uh, a rabbi would come to you and say, hey, follow me. And at that point, you would leave your life behind. You'd actually leave your home. You'd leave your family. You'd leave everything. And you would begin to live with this rabbi. And you would begin to learn and grow and learn who the rabbi was, but not just, we talked about last week, not, not just grow in knowledge, but what you really wanted was to be like the rabbi. You wanted to live like the rabbi lived. And that's what it meant to be a disciple. Now, at some point, the rabbi, when he felt like you were ready, he would say this to you, go make your own disciples. And we noticed that in the Great Commission that Jesus said the same thing. Now, as a result of these villages where Jesus picked the disciples and the values that he instilled in them for three years, we discovered three foundational principles that were evident in the first century disciples of Jesus, then in the writers of the New Testament, and have become the foundation and the principles of the disciples ever since then. And they're these three things. Number one, a disciple understood the strength of living in community. A disciple had a passion for God's word and for living it out. And a disciple was ready to leave everything behind and follow their rabbi. Now, there was some things that were a little bit different about Jesus and his form of discipleship that we also need to understand, and I want to talk about those this morning. One of the things that was really different about Jesus was Jesus began to ask ordinary people to follow him. Remember before we talked about last week when you were in the structure of discipleship in your, in your local village and in the synagogue and with your rabbi, it, it was very intentional. So you, you had to have an intense passion for God and you had to, to model that and show that and reveal that. And Jesus comes along and he begins to ask ordinary people to follow him. In fact, you actually couldn't become a, a disciple of a rabbi until you went all the way through Beth Midrash and you, you focused, memorized the entire Old Testament and you really 
showed to the rabbi, I'm going to commit my entire life to God. Well, Jesus starts showing up and asking ordinary people to be disciples, people like fishermen. He just asks five regular fisher guys to go be disciples. Now, I love that about Jesus because I love Jesus and I love to fish. And so I think that the two connected makes for a great relationship. But then he began to ask some really crazy people like tax collectors. Matthew, the first gospel that we read in the New Testament, was a tax collector. This is not just any ordinary person in society. This is the worst person in society. The lowliest, the most horrible, the most despicable and deplorable person in the city is the tax collector. Would we all agree? And Jesus says, follow me. I want to be really close to you. And that kind of breaks everything we think about God, right? Wait, God wants to be close to the worst and the dirtiest guy? Yeah, he does. And so Jesus begins to model this whole new way of being a disciple. He didn't go looking for the valedictorians at Beth Midrash. He called ordinary people to be disciples. Now, what does that tell us? It's really good news. Are you ready? It means you and I are worthy too. It means that today, 2022, that Jesus is calling ordinary people like you and me to just say, hey, come have a relationship with me. I like you. I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. See, this is the manner in which people chose to follow Jesus in the first century and has continued for centuries. Now, last week, we also asked a really important personal question, and I want to ask it again in our message this morning. Here's the challenging question we asked. There was a personal question of ourselves. Since we're in our series, Do I Trust God? And it's this. Do you trust that you are a disciple of Jesus? Do you trust that you're a disciple of Jesus? See, the writers of the New Testament were all individuals that spent a significant amount of time with Jesus every single day, all day long for three years. And then they began to write the things that they wrote. They understood what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. They understood and they wanted the people in the churches that began in the first century to understand what it meant to follow Jesus too. And that's why we have the New Testament. These letters that these disciples and apostles wrote to the churches and to the followers of Jesus in the first century, they describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But here's what's interesting. Because God's word is timeless, it applies to every generation. It applies to them. It applies to us exactly the same. We see a couple new ways that the disciples would change and relationship with God would change just a little bit different from the Old Testament. For instance, the gospel of Jesus Christ was for all people, not just the Jews. There was something that the Jews did, and I don't really think that God ever intended for this to happen, but they began, they began to, to kind of hog the good news of God. And they didn't share it with their neighbors. In fact, they began to become very prejudiced and racist, 
And if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, they wouldn't even talk to you. They wouldn't walk on the same side of the street as you. And so there became this disdain for somebody that was not a Jew, that was not living us for and no more. And so that became the foundation. It became the mindset of the culture of the Jewish people. And Jesus said, I want you to drop that mindset. I want you to, if the disciple of Jesus Christ... You need to understand that the truth of God's word in the Old Testament and the New is not just for you, it's for all people. Secondly, Jesus told the disciples to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Now this was huge because for generations and generations and generations, you, you just lived in your little village and you stayed there and maybe once in a while you'd go to a celebration in Jerusalem, but for the most part, you'd spend your entire lifetime in a village somewhere around the Sea of Galilee or in southern Israel or western, eastern Israel, maybe on the coast, but you live primarily there your entire life. And now Jesus says what? Go, make disciples to the ends of the earth. They don't even know where the ends of the earth are. You mean the other side of the Sea of Galilee? No, I'm talking about Chile. Chile, where's Chile? Like they don't even know, but they just go. The gospel of Jesus Christ was also going to be relevant in every culture, even though the culture was very different from the Jewish culture. See, the Jewish culture thought our culture is the best culture because our culture is godly. It wasn't always true. But what Jesus did with the gospel and with the principles that we see in his word is made the gospel relevant to every single culture. Now, it became relevant to every single culture because it was relevant to mankind, because <laughs> we all have similarities. We all have things that we want on the core of who we are as a human because we're created by God the Father. And so Jesus begins to lay that out and it becomes who we are as disciples. It begins to transcend time. See, the gospel was gonna travel around the world and intersect people of all different kinds of cultures and values. And that, that was evident from the first century disciples. Now, these values that the disciples held in the first century that we see in the New Testament, they became the foundational truths for all disciples of Jesus. These four things. Community is important. God's word is the truth we live by. Each disciple will leave their old life of sin behind. And every disciple could make disciples. These are the four things that we see evident in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the church and in disciples and followers of Jesus Christ from the first century to right now, 2022. And I wanna talk about these four things. The first one, a disciple lives in community. A disciple lives in community. Now you'll remember this new community of people that would believe in Jesus' name, they were a little different from the discipleship that we saw in the communities in Galilee. The communities in Galilee, while they had the foundation and the principles of community that Jesus would want in the church and in his people moving forward, those communities were primarily, those tight communities were based on family. They were families living together. And so in those Galilean communities, they were bound together by blood, by family blood. In the first century church, it began to be made up of people that had left their family behind. 
to follow Jesus. Many of them had been kicked out of their family to follow Jesus because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So the first followers of Jesus in the first century were people that also began to be bound together in community with their brothers and sisters in Christ through blood, but not family blood. Jesus' blood. The blood of Christ began to be the thing that held them together and it's still the thing that holds community and the church together. His blood shed on a cross for our forgiveness is the foundation of our community at Cheney Faith Center and the global church around the world. In fact, the blood of Jesus is so powerful that it unites every single person who has believed in God from the beginning of creation till the end of time. We live in a tight community whose foundation is the sacrifice and shed blood of Jesus. These new communities, these churches in the first century were full of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, free and slave, Romans and non-Romans, moral people and immoral people. This was the church in the first century. It's also the church in the 21st century, isn't it? This is the makeup of the church. But they lived in close community with one another. And they encouraged that close community because they recognized that part of living for Christ and living together was, meant we've got to live in community together. Listen to some of the encouragement that the New Testament writers gave the church, but it's also for us today. Look at Ephesians 4, 15 to 16. To the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit perfectly together. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now look at some of the things that are the descriptions of the community called church here in Ephesians chapter four. The first thing he said was they, they speak the truth. That's great. So they didn't lie to one another. They, they spoke the truth to one another. But how many of us know that there's several ways to actually speak the truth? Because you can speak the truth in anger. You can speak the truth in judgmentalism. You can speak the truth in a couple different ways. But in particular, this community, the Church of Jesus Christ, spoke the truth in a different way. They spoke the truth in love. They didn't speak the truth from some self-righteous place, from some pharisaical place, from some place where I think I'm better than you, so I need to tell you what you don't know. No, they spoke the truth in love. And then they, they grew in every way, it said. In every way, they wanted to become more and more like Jesus. Now, it also said that Jesus was the head of the body and and that he would make it fit together perfectly. And in this section, we have this example that you see throughout the New Testament over and over again. 
that the church is described like our body. And our body moves and has its way and goes about its day because each part is what? Is doing its work. And each part has a specific task. But Jesus is the head of that. He's the one that makes it all fit together perfectly. And the way he makes it fit together perfectly is by reminding each of us of our gifts and our talents, whether those are physical or spiritual or however that works for each of us. But Jesus begins to make all that fit together perfectly as each part, get this, does its own special work. That means that God has given you a special work to do in his church and in the world to grow in Christ and to reveal Christ to the world. My challenge to you is, are you using your special gift that God has given you? Do you serve somewhere in the church? Do you serve somewhere outside the church to glorify Jesus? Are you using your part, your special part of the body and, and helping the body grow. See, the body has all kinds of parts, right? But what if all of a sudden some of us said, I, I don't want to serve anymore? And that would mean we don't have eyes. That'd be hard. Be hard to live as a body being blind. Well, when, when, when we say, I'm not going to use my gifts for Jesus, it means that there's part of the body that's not working. And we, we, we would say, that's not healthy. It's not healthy for my right arm to not work. It's not healthy for my leg to not work. But when you and I say, I'm not gonna use my talents or my gifts for Jesus in the church or outside the church to reveal Christ to others, then there's part of the body that's just not working. Now we're meant to be healthy and growing and full of love. And the way that happens is by the whole body working together. Now we work together in community. We don't work separate, right? I didn't come to church and leave my leg at home. Like, oh, I'll, I'll pick it up later. <laughs> no, it's all got to be together at the same time, right? And that's what we're meant to be. We're meant to be working together all the time. That's why we have to be in community. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now here we have some more descriptions of the community of the church that we're motivating one another to acts of love and good works, that that's one of the things we should always be doing as a body of Christ, encouraging one another. We know each other's talents and gifts and we're saying, hey, hey, I, I heard that you're a great mechanic. There's a, there's a single mom in our church. She just needs her car fixed. Could I connect you two and you could, you could, in the name of Jesus, fix her car? See, that's how the church begins to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And then if Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect meeting together. One of the most important things is we need to meet together. Now, this is one of the things in the church that has become a bit challenging as of late. Regular attendance now looks something like going to church somewhere between four to six, every four to six weeks. Now, once every four to six weeks. Well, that's that's not very good. 
In fact, if that's true, then that means the NFL has a better record than we do. And soccer does, and snow slopes do, and lakes do. But if we're the community, if we're the body of Christ, and we're, we're focusing on helping the world see Jesus, then we can't neglect meeting together. See, if these things are true about community, and they are, then how can I also say, I don't need the church. Like this is a Western Christian thought that I think we only hear in the United States probably. I don't need the church. I don't need community. We worship Jesus at home by ourselves. Really? I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. I, I, I think Jesus would say that we need to be in community, not individuals. Now, does that mean I'm sick and I'm at home and I don't want to get people sick at church, so I'm going to watch church at TV, on TV this morning? That's fine. That's great. We don't want you to get everybody sick, so that's fine. But at some point, we need face-to-face -face time, don't we? At some time, we need to hold one another's hand in a circle and pray for somebody. We need to worship together. We need to hear each other's voices proclaiming the praises of Jesus. And I need to hear my neighbor singing to the left and to the right. I need to hear kids crying and I need to hear kids singing and I need to hear kids laughing and I need to eat a donut with somebody. <laughs> this is community, right? This is what we need to do. And so it needs to be a regular part of our life. Now, one thing that's been interesting is COVID has... I think changed and in some ways hurt this biblical reality. Because COVID changed all of us, didn't it? Did you notice that? Did you notice that there are things that you've changed in your life as a result of COVID? We've become more independent, haven't we? We begin to think that we can do life without one another. And we've now discovered that there are a lot of ways that we can make money without ever having to go see someone. And we can do life in community or with, without community in all kinds of different ways. Now, technology has afforded that to us and there are some great advantages to, to, to technology. But I think down the road, if we continue that direction, those of you that are younger right now, when you get into your 30s and your 40s, you'll begin to say, there's a giant, I notice a giant void in my life. What is that? That void is doing life without people. And God didn't make us that way. He made us to be in community with people, to be loving one another and encouraging one another and getting mad at one another and having to forgive one another and care for one another's needs and protect one another and doing all of those things together. That's what God meant. And that's what God intended. And that's what we see in the church. If our culture is choosing to do things independently, but we know as the church that the value of Jesus and our Savior is that we do things in community, then we need to do things in community. And we need to model that to a culture that wants to be independent. Because we all know what's going to happen eventually at some point that independent thinking is going to fall flat on its face. And it will be the church of Jesus Christ that will still have our doors open to that and, and see a flood of independent people coming in saying, I need people, I need community. And let's let the church be open to that so the gospel of Jesus Christ can affect them. Amen? Amen. 
See, in the Western church, we do a really good job of preaching and teaching and educating one another with biblical knowledge. But I also believe it's time for us to make community just as important. That means we have to make choices to do life together, not apart. Remember, that was a foundation of the Galilean disciples. Everything about life was done together. And that needs to be true for us. There needs to be, every single one of us needs to have families that we're doing life together with in our church. And whether you figured out those relationships in a structured way because of something we were doing at church or in a very organic way because you just began to invite some families over to your house and pray and read the word together, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're in community with people that love Jesus and that you're growing in Christ. That's the first thing that we see overwhelmingly throughout the New Testament is that a disciple lives in community. Second, a disciple of Jesus still believes that God's word is the truth we live by. One of the things that was a passion of every disciple and has been from since Jesus left is that God's word is the truth we live by. See, a disciple of Jesus has a new set of beliefs based on God's word. Now, as you begin to watch the church grow in the first century, second century, third century, it becomes so huge that the Roman Empire actually submits to it because people all around the world are beginning to believe in Jesus. But what's interesting is as you look at all kinds of different people groups believing in Jesus, you have a challenge because every single people group has their own set of beliefs, their own set of religious beliefs, their own unique beliefs about morality and right and wrong and family structures and financial obligations and how to parent and education and all of these things can be different from culture to culture to language to language to state to state to geographical region. But what you begin to see is that the disciples of Jesus are all connected by God's word because God's word becomes the truth we live by. When someone believes in Jesus, we embrace his words found in God's word. A disciple has a new set of beliefs and it's the truth we live by. The other day, I was, I was just reading through some scripture and reading through, I've been reading through First and Second Corinthians and discovered that it's just so rich. And I was just caught up with the fact that followers of Jesus live for Jesus. And we understand that the Bible is Jesus' words and they help us live out God's plan for our life while we're here on earth. I was reminded that that's exactly what the Bible is. You've probably heard this before, but the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. That's the acronym, right? Basic instructions before leaving earth. And one of the verses that I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse two, that just reminded me that God's worth is the truth we live by was, was verse two. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul is trying to help the people in Corinth to understand who Jesus is and live in him. And in verse two, he says this, I beg you that when I come, 
I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Every culture, every group of people, we all have our own ideas. They're the standards of this world. But followers of Jesus, we live by a different standard. And the standard that we live by is God's eternal word. And it's what unites us all. Unites us in community, unites us in belief. See, our world has standards. Have you noticed that our world wants you to live by its standards? And that if you don't believe their standards, there's consequences? We're seeing that in a drastic way today than we've never seen it before. That if you don't believe like they do, there will be consequences. We will categorize you a certain way. We will call you a certain thing. If you don't believe exactly like we do. That's not new, by the way. That was happening in the first century. And Paul says this. As followers of Jesus, here's what I need you to know. We don't live by the standards of the world. We live by the standards in God's word. They're what lead us and guide us. Because our world thinks differently than God does. And we see that all around, all around today. And not just in the American culture, it's global. It's not just an American thing. It's worldwide. Every single nation, every single people group thinks differently than God does about marriage and family and what should be the number one priority and how finances work and how education works and what purity looks like and what character is and how we should raise our kids and what love is, how do we define it? All of those things are different in every culture and so those cultures and every culture, our culture as well, we have to learn to live by Jesus' standards. But one of the challenges that you and I will always have is this fight that we have that can I embrace the world's standards and live out the standards of God's word? And I think Paul answers that. He says, no. Here's what I need you to know. Some of you think that you can live by the standards of the world and live by the standards of God's word, and you can't. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It doesn't work that way. Another thing that the New Testament says about God's word is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, where it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In this section where Paul's talking about putting on the armor of God because he recognized that every single one of us as believers is in a battle. And as we live our life and we live out the standards of God's word, we are in a battle. And when we say, um, I'm gonna live based on my own standards, I'm gonna make up my own way of living for Jesus and I'm gonna ignore God's word, then it's like going to battle without your sword, okay? Now you might still have your shield of faith, that's great, <laughs> but that, that means your only option in battle is to defend yourself with a shield the entire time while someone's attacking you. And wouldn't it be nice at some point during the battle to just end it real quick? That's what God's word does. Remember, that's what Jesus did with Satan. 
Satan came to him three different times and tempted him, and Jesus used three different verses to make the enemy leave him alone. And that's exactly what God's word is for. It helps us tell the enemy, leave me alone. Stop talking to me like that. Stop lying to me. I know the truth of God's word. And I'm not gonna listen to you anymore. Here, take that. Little stab here and there, right? But if you're not, if you don't know God's word and you're not living in it and you're not passionate about it and it's not the truth that you live by, then you're going into battle and you're doing life without your sword on. And life will just be tough that way as a Christian. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it, it says, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. I love this verse. It's so good about what the word of God does. In fact, each of us, I think it would be great if we, if we saw God's word like the Thessalonians did. And here's what it said. Number one, they received it. They received God's word. So they took it in. They made it their own. Second, they accepted it. But here's what's interesting. They didn't accept it as a human word, but they accepted it as God's word. In other words, they understood that it wasn't the orator. It wasn't the great speaker. It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't the, maybe the way it made them feel in the moment. It, it wasn't any of that. It was that this is the truth. And they saw, okay, that is the truth. And they didn't just recognize, they recognized that because their, their humanness, their humanity said, that's right. I am created. I'm not just made up. And, and a, an all-knowing God created me and he sent his son to die for me. And so they received that and they accepted that. that and then lastly, they let it work in them. I thought, well, that's so good. That's exactly what we need to do as disciples today with God's word. We, every single day, whatever you read, receive it, accept it, and then let it work in you. And that's why it's so important for us to be in God's word every single day. Here's another great verse about God's word. 1 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love this verse because what it says is God, God wants to thoroughly equip you. God wants to thoroughly equip you. Have you ever worked at a job where they didn't train you? <laughs> You're like, and they just, you know, hey, Go on, go drill that steel over there. Like, well, what do I use? Well, the drill press, of course. And you're like over there with this giant piece of steel and you're supposed to put holes in it and you don't even know where to put holes in it or anything. And you're like, I, this is crazy. I'm gonna drill a hole in my finger. I don't, I'm, this, is, this is the weirdest thing in the world. I don't know what to do. I need training. First Timothy 3 says, here's your training manual. As a Christian, as a follower and a disciple of Jesus, 
This is your training manual. And what God is saying is, I want you to be thoroughly equipped for every single thing you will experience in your life. And God's word is going to help you with that. It's going to train you. It's going to teach you. It's going to rebuke you. It's going to correct you. It's going to help us know what is righteous and what is not so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good thing that God wants us to do. Now, these new set of beliefs as a follower of Jesus, they're lived out and they're based on God's word. They're not based on our own ideas. They're not based on man's philosophy or picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like about Jesus or making up our own ideals. It's God's word and we submit to it. That's what a disciple does. A disciple understands that God's word is the truth we live by. Third, a disciple is living with Jesus daily. You're living with Jesus daily. You recognize that this is a relationship that you are in with Jesus. See, the original disciples of Jesus, they had, they had the privilege of living with him every day for three years until he went back to heaven. But there's something very interesting that Jesus says to those first original disciples. They're his very last words in Acts chapter one. He says, before you do anything else as a follower of me, as a disciple of me, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the gift that my father has given you. And so they did. They went back to Jerusalem and they waited and they prayed. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on them and they spoke in tongues. And five minutes later, Peter goes out in the street, he preaches a message and 3,000 people get saved. In other words, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, I want to be really close to you. But the way that you're going to understand me being really close to you all the time is through the Holy Spirit. The way you're going to live with me daily is to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing in you because he will always help you live for me. In John chapter 15, verse five, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus talks about this very, very direct connection that you and I can have with him. And he uses a very basic illustration. It's an agricultural one. That there's a vine and the branches come off of that vine. And that's where the fruit is produced. But if you're not connected to the vine, if you don't remain in the vine, if you're not stuck to the vine, you don't get the nutrients that you need to grow. You don't get the things that you need to help the fruit get produced. So you have to stay connected to the vine. What Jesus is saying is to all his disciples, you need to stay connected to me. Now today... This is a spiritual connection more than it's a physical one. The connection happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the degree that we live in the Spirit is the degree that we are connected to Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is constantly helping us live for Christ. Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul declares several important things that happen to a disciple when we believe and live for Jesus. Number one, our old life is supposed to die. Our old life is supposed to be crucified. And we're constantly submitting it to Jesus and we're constantly changing our life to follow Jesus and our old life is just beginning to simply fade away. But Paul says something interesting here. He said, Christ lives in me. He lives in me. Now here's what's interesting. This isn't a loss of our identity. Some people think, you know, one of the things I just can't get on board with Christianity, I mean, you want me to change everything about who I am. Like you want me to change everything about who I am and, 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 and what I believe and what I think and everything. It's just not me. That's not really how it works. This isn't a loss of your identity. It's an embrace of your true identity. That's what it is. See, we've all just actually been faking before. We're just in a fake identity, a false identity, living in some sort of social media world where we're just begging for likes all the time and doing whatever we can to get more likes. And we don't even care that the likes hurt us or damage us or cause pain. All we care about is being liked and valued. And, and so we don't even care that our identity is false all along. And as the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ begin to change our identity, we can often get into the false notion that God's trying to change everything about me. No, he's trying to get you closer to the true identity that he made. You remember he made you and formed you before the creation of the world in your mother's womb. He knows exactly who I'm supposed to be. He knows exactly who you're supposed to be. But we've spent our entire life outside of Christ doing our own thing and making up our own identity that doesn't look anything like the identity that Jesus created. And so the whole time he's making us more like him, the true identity that humanity was called to live in since the garden. Our true identity is discovered and lived out. Interestingly, look with me. As you trust in the Son of God. Now we've been asking this question. Do I trust God? And Paul says here, here's what I've discovered. My old self, it's fading away. I'm living in Christ now and Christ is living in me. And the way that happens is when I trust in the Son of God. Do I trust in God? I hope so. Do I trust that I'm a disciple? I hope so. Because it means Christ is in you and you're embracing him. Our true identity is discovered as we live out and trust in Jesus and embrace his love for us. The last thing, the fourth thing that disciples do is a disciple goes and makes disciples. This brings us full circle to what we first talked about last week. Every disciple can make disciples. It's not something that's privileged to pastors or leaders or anything like that. Every single one of us can make disciples. 
I'm trusting that uh, the longer you live with Jesus, the more you know about Jesus because you're in his word. That means if somebody comes to you and says, could I just hang out with you for like once a week? Could we just go to Starbucks and get coffee? And I'll just ask you questions about the word. And I'll just ask you about what you do with Jesus. Could we do that? You need to be able to answer yes. That's what a disciple can do. You don't have to say, I can't do that, but I'll let you talk to my pastor. That's not how it works in the kingdom. Every single one of us needs to be able to make disciples. Every single one of us needs to be able to take someone and help them learn how to live for Jesus. You say, well, Pastor Mark, I, I, don't, I can't do that very well. I'm only a junior in high school. Well, there's a sixth grader that's wondering how to live for Jesus. And you were in sixth grade once and you remember how hard it was in sixth grade. So, well, I'm just a sophomore in college. What, what could I tell a sophomore in high school? A whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> Lots of things about living for Jesus. You know exactly where they're at. You're not very far removed from that. If they talk to me, I'm more removed from high school than I was as a sophomore in college. They don't want to hear my high school stories. They want to hear your high school stories because they're not that old and they're still relevant. Mine are old and irrelevant. Not completely, but partially. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. At Cheney Faith Center, we exist to help people know Jesus and live for him daily. This is our job description. And it's not just my job description. It's our job description. Every single one of us can disciple someone else. At the beginning of the year, you'll remember that I challenged each of us to pray for one person this year to believe in Jesus. And I hope you've been keeping up with that prayer. I hope you've been continuing to bring that person before the Lord because here's what I know, and here's what I believe Jesus knew too, and it's the power of multiplication. See, if every single one of us just in this room, not even including second service, just begins to pray for one person, and that one person, let's say that one person gets saved in this next year, then this room doubles, right? And then we all do it again. And everyone in the room that's doubled prays for one person it doubles again and again and again. See, that's the purpose. That's the plan. That's what Jesus meant. If each of us would just focus on one person and help one person become a disciple and all of us did it together, the power of multiplication begins to take over. And before you know it, you've gone to the end of the world. we asked ourselves this really important question. Am I a true disciple of Jesus? Is that who I am? And these four things I think are a good, they're just a good little measuring stick for us as disciples of Jesus. 
How am I doing? Where am I at? These four things I think we can look at and say, how am I doing as a disciple of Jesus? Are you in community in the church and growing in Jesus with others? Is God's word the truth that you live by? Are you living with Jesus daily? And are you committed to making disciples? This is what a New Testament disciple looks like. And it's what I would love for all of us to be too. It's the goal of God's heart. It's the goal of our church. It's what we want to see in our community because we recognize that there are lots of people in Cheney and on the West Plains and around the world that need to know Jesus. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Would you just bow your head with me for a minute? These, these four things that we talked about the past couple of weeks, man, they're, they're a big deal. Being in community and trusting in God's word. Just choosing to make disciples and also choosing to just be committed to leaving my old life behind. These are big asks. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're things that we get to do and can do because he's working in us. It's not, we're not doing this alone. And so I just want to ask, maybe there's someone in the room You haven't made that commitment to Jesus yet. You haven't said, that's, that's who I am. That's who I want to be. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want, I want that community. I want to leave my old life behind. I want the foundation of God's word in my life. If that's you this morning, maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're watching later. And that's just where you're at. And you say, I, I need to believe in Jesus. I need to receive him, accept him, and just begin to live for him. I'm going to ask you just, just where you're at, raise your hand. Let it be a sign to God. Let him see it. Let us see it. If that's you this morning, you say, I want to start a relationship with Jesus. Just raise your hand. I'm going to give us a minute to think about that. Also, there might be one of the areas that we've talked about the past couple weeks that the, you recognize that the Holy Spirit's really been talking to you about one of those areas. And you know you gotta work on that. It's just something the Holy Spirit's been speaking very plainly and clearly to you about. And so this morning, if you just want to say, Jesus, I, I am committed to working on one of those areas to be a better disciple of you, to be a better follower, to be in better relationship with you, 
and you just want to tell Jesus, I'm, I'm going to work on that. Would you just raise your hand too, just so that the Lord can see it. And just say, Jesus, I want you to see me. I want you to see my hand. And I'm just making a commitment to make that better in my life. Thank you. Thanks for those hands all over. If you put your hands down, let's just pray as we, as we close. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this community. For this little church in Cheney, Washington that you started several decades ago. You started it. You're the head of it. But it's also our responsibility to be involved in it. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would help every single one of us to see the beauty and the strength of the church of Jesus Christ. That we would choose to make relationships, to build them, to grow in them, to not leave them, to make them a priority during our day and our week. Lord, help us to be a strong church and community with one another. Help us to be followers that have said, we recognize that the world is going one way, but we're gonna live by the standards of God's word. It's the truth we live by. That we would read God's word, we'd study God's word, we'd find the strength of God's word in our life, (laughs) and God's word would be our sword every day. That we would choose to leave our old life of sin behind. And that lastly, Lord, as followers of Jesus Christ that have trusted in you and are calling ourselves disciples, we discover where we need to serve, how we can use our gifts and our talents for you, and how we can go and make disciples, whether that's next door, across the street, at work, or somewhere on the other side of the world. Whatever you're calling us to, Jesus, would you help us to answer and say yes and go? We give you thanks and praise, Jesus, for what you're doing in each of us. We pray that you continue to use us as a church mightily. Help us to live in the spirit and in the power of Christ in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. It was great to see you at church today. Thanks for being here. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.